0: right and now from the station that brought you Job in one talk, Daniel, in two, because um, there's just far too much to do in one talk, only 12 chapters but um, there is so much in there so you know for, for this book it's, it's going to be two, two talks. Now when we come to this book we, we really come to the heart of prophecy in the Old Testament and um and this book really is the key along with revelation to understanding the end times and uh, so it is quite fascinating and uh, i mean you'll see the link with uh the apocalypse of saint john as it's technically known you know, but the revelation you'll see the link with that later and um but really what we have in daniel is a fairly detailed history of uh, kind of um, Israel and the world situation from the time of Daniel himself right through to the time of Jesus then obviously it jumps the church age and then picks up in the Great Tribulation right you know sort of r- right through you know to the Millennium and everything so it, it, it's really quite quite involved but it's quite fascinating as well and uh, so so think of it sort of Dan Dan the prophecy man alright and, and that kind of uh, you know, sort of sums up. There's a lot of narrative as well. There's a lot of story here, but I mean, the story I'm really going to be glossing over, just just giving you the, the bare bones of it. But uh, in, diving into to chapter one, um, chapter one gives us the historical context of Daniel, and uh, and basically just to you know to place it in Israel's history, um, where about a hundred years or so after the Northern Kingdom was taken into the Assyrian captivity. Remember, Israel, the Northern Kingdom, the Assyrians carted them off. Um, and, uh, and sort of right now we're, we're kind of all in the history of the Babylonian captivity when the Southern Kingdom was carted off by the Babylonians. Now the details that we're given it homes in on, on, Israel, on the Judah's last three kings. Now you'll, you'll remember because of the many hours you spend listening to my tapes, Uh, that Judah's last three kings were Jehoiakim, followed by his son Jehoiakim, and then by his brother Zedekiah. And what had happened is that Israel became a vassal nation of Egypt. We saw this when we did all the kings and the history of Israel that eventually Judah became a vassal nation to um, Egypt, sorry, Egypt, under the reign of Pharaoh Necho. So they are now vassals to Pharaoh Necho, and it was Pharaoh Necho who made Jehoiakim the king. All right. Now, during his reign, Jehoiakim, whom Pharaoh Necho making, during his reign, Egypt fell to the Babylonian Empire, to Nebuchadnezzar, took over Egypt now if in the ancient world if you conquered a nation any vassal nations that that nation had belong to you It's like if we're playing monopoly if you land on Mayfair and I've got Mayfair with a hotel and you can't afford to pay well I get everything you've got I get your houses I get your stations you name it alright now it was much the same so the Babylonians take over the then known world Egypt falls to them so all the nations, if they had any vassal nations, it passed over to the Babylonians, and so therefore, overnight, Judah is suddenly a vassal to the Babylonians, and Nebuchadnezzar is top dog rather than Pharaoh Necho. Now, what happened then is that you got switching kings, because obviously, you know, sort of like you know, the Babylonian Empire takes over from the Egyptian Empire, so it asserts its power, and so all these political changes. And uh, so Jehoiakim is eventually uh, replaced by his son Jehoiakim, all right? And, uh, and then there's loads and loads of intrigue, and I, I refer you back to past talks when we covered this. And uh, eventually Zedekiah ends up as king, Zedekiah being Jehoiakim's uh, uncle, Jehoiakim's brother, all right? And, uh, but eventually what happened was that the Babylonians could take Israel, uh, sort of Judah's rebellions no more and eventually in they marched. And in 606 BC, the Babylonian army occupied Judah and Jerusalem and they plundered the temple. And they didn't at that point destroy the land, that came a bit later. But this was the initial invasion when the Babylonians said, right, that's it, you're not going to be vassals anymore, we're just going to invade you, all right? And at this point, 606 BC, the first batch of captives were taken back to Babylon. All right? And uh, you'll remember, you know, we saw that Ezekiel ended up out there as well. All right? Jeremiah has been uh, sort of like burrowing away, working away um, in Jerusalem. All right, And uh, Ezekiel ended up in the captivity. And uh, this is at the point where Daniel comes in. Because in this first wave of captives that Nebuchadnezzar takes back to Babylon... There are four young men who are the focal point of this book. And they were called Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, they were of the royal household, so they were related to the king, you know, the royal line in the house of David. They were handsome and they were intelligent. So these are guys I can identify with personally. I'm not of the royal household, but two out of three ain't bad. okay? (laughs) And... They were taken back to Babylon to serve Nebuchadnezzar in his courts. And, um, you know, because they they were so clever and stuff like that. And the Babylonians, if they took captives, they didn't automatically make them all slaves. If there were people that they thought, hey, these guys can serve us and be useful, then they used it. And uh, these four guys, um, you know, sort of like uh, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, Nebuchadnezzar decided to train them to be Magi. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was surrounded by wise men, spiritual advisors called Magi. Fundamentally occultists, all right? But as we're going to see, in this move, the Magi have introduced into it a stream of believers, all right? Now, the first thing that happened when you were taken captive is that you had your name changed, all right? So they lost their Hebrew names and they got Babylonian ones. And uh, Daniel was renamed Belteshazzar, Hananiah Shadrach, Mishael was renamed Meshach, and Azariah Abednego. And they're the names they're most known as. Belteshazzar, that's Daniel, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So you've got these four Jews, all right, all believers, and they've been transplanted into the Babylonian Kingdom, into the capital. And there they are from Jerusalem, Jews, but believers. And they've been taken into captivity with the rest of the nation. And uh, they're, they're put under a tutor, you know, sort of like the guy who was going to train them to be magi. And it was expected of them that they'd be well f- fed and fine strapping young lads. But the first thing they do is that they ask to be put on a vegetable and water diet. Now, the reason being that. Uh, sort of like the Babylonians, all their meat was sacrificed to idols and as an act of conscience these four guys, they wanted to make sure that they weren't, you know, sort of like anything to do with that at all and they wanted water, not wine, obviously because the wine, you know, Babylon, it did tend to wasn't just a glass of wine, you know, it was bottles, it was tankards, it was, it w- it was Scotland, uh, Hogmanay, you know so therefore as an act of conscience, an example as believers, they wanted to abstain. Now uh, the their, their tutor was not keen on that, but what they did is they persuaded him because if 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 they'd have kind of like been unhealthy and ill, their tutor would have copped it. So what they did is give us a while, okay, on that diet and see how we're doing. And at the end of the time period, they were healthier than any of the others, and so therefore they you know were okay on that, and so they stuck with this vegetable and water diet as so something I can at the moment largely identify with, and. Um, and what happens is that Daniel, or Belteshazzar, kind of emerges as their natural head. So like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were kind of like under, and, and Daniel emerged as, as being their natural leader. And, uh, and what happened is that four, the four of them, these four guys, they became Nebuchadnezzar's favourite magi. Out of all his wise men, these four, with Daniel at their head, were his favorite now of course this explains why when jesus was born you could have magi who turned up who weren't occultists and the magi weren't occultists and you know sort of like the connection with the star that they saw wasn't astronomy at all they were magi but they were believers they were waiting for messiah and the prophecies of daniel you know sort of like actually indicated as we'll see in the next talk the actual time period when Messiah would be born you know the actual dates involved and so here we have the introduction of a Christian or a believing group within the Babylonian Magi and obviously we see from the time of Jesus with the Magi turning up that believers remained amongst the Magi all the way down history which was absolutely amazing so here Daniel and his three friends are the king the king's favourite magi, so Nebuchadnezzar has really taken a shine to them. Now chapter 2 okay, begins kind of you know like the whole visionary thing because there's dreams and visions all denoting future world history or future to Daniel at any rate. So in chapter 2 we have the account that Nebuchadnezzar is troubled by dreams, he's having nightmares and uh, he, he gathers some of the magi together. Daniel and his three friends at this point aren't amongst them. And uh, you know these are the occultic ones. And he is um, you know kind of troubled by these dreams, and uh, and he demands from them not only that they interpret the dreams and tell him what they mean, but he demands of them that they tell him what his dreams were. So this is a tough test. This isn't just, hey, you know, here's my dream, tell me what it means. This is, firstly, you tell me what I dreamed. Secondly, you interpret what the dream means. This is what Nebuchadnezzar did to his magi. This guy's expectations were high of his wise men, to say the least. And, um, and they couldn't do it. And he had said, if you can't do it, all the magi I'm going to put them to death. So he's called some of the Magi, he says, tell me what my dreams have been and interpret them. And if you don't, the whole lot of you I'm putting to death. And of course, that would have included Daniel and his three friends. So this is a bit of a, bit of a toughie, this. And, um, but, you know, sort of, so Daniel and his th- three friends, I mean, obviously they hear about this and they know that, right, you know, they're in for the chop unless the dreams get interpreted. So what they do is they, they start praying. And they say, Lord, you know, sort of like, show us what to do. And the Lord shows Daniel what the dreams were. So Daniel, you know, manages to get before the king. And he says, hang on, Neb. See, because they're quite quite friendly. Hang on, Neb, he says. And he says, I can tell you what the dreams are. And so therefore, the day was saved for all the magi. Okay, so this is kind of like the, the first dream. And so Daniel tells him what he was dreaming and he, he said, King, this is your dream. You dreamed of a statue, this enormous statue. And the statue was broken down in what it was made of in this way. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. The chest and the arms, of the torso, was made of silver. The belly and thighs were made of bronze Now, the legs were made of iron, and the feet were made of a mixture of iron and clay. So, he dreams of this big statue, head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly thighs of bronze, legs of iron and feet, a mixture of iron and clay. And then what happens is that a rock that is uncut by human hands, so this will be a natural boulder, rather than something that's been chipped out by a chisel or something, a rock uncut by human hands, strikes this statue on its feet, the feet being made of iron and clay. And what happens is that as the rock strikes the feet of iron and clay, it smashes them, and the statue topples over and is destroyed. So fundamentally, this rock has destroyed the whole um, statue. And then this uncut rock that has destroyed the feet It becomes a mountain and it fills the whole earth. Now that was the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Daniel then goes on to give him the interpretation. And he tells him that the statue represents world powers and that the head of gold is the king himself. So Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. So this statue represented world powers Then, at that point in history, and world powers yet to come. And the Babylonian Empire was the head of gold. And Daniel tells him that three other world powers are going to arise after the Babylonian world power. Now, secular history tells us exactly what those three are. Daniel isn't given their names, but as we look back on section... (laughs) sectional history, secular history, we know exactly what these kingdoms were. And uh, now, the Babylonian Empire as a world empire had been preceded by Egypt and Assyria. So prior to the time of Daniel, there had been two world powers. Firstly, Egypt, and secondly, Assyria. Now, the head of gold is the Babylonian Empire, okay? That's Nebuchadnezzar. And that empire lasted... At this point, it's 606 BC, and that kingdom lasted until 536 BC, so 70 years or so. Now, the chest and arms of silver represented the Medo-Persian Empire, which took over from the Babylonians, and that empire ran from 536 BC to 322, so quite a nice little stretch there. The next one, the belly and thighs of bronze, was Greece, and the Greek Empire, and we'll be coming back to these empires as we go through the book. You know, this is this is like the introductory vision. This is setting the scene for everything that's to follow. So the Greek Empire followed. That's the belly and thighs of bronze. That followed in 331 BC through to 146. Bit of an overlap there with the Medo-Persian Empire, but that tended to happen. There'd be a, an, an overlap period when, you know, sort of like two two kingdoms were vying. The supremacy but eventually greece took over from the medo-persian empire and then lastly the the legs of iron and the feet of iron and play, uh, and clay was the roman empire and in in the interpretation in the dream all right this fourth empire is specifically said to be a divided kingdom now we'll be back to that a bit later but this fourth kingdom or empire, the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay, uh, you know, a divided kingdom, that was Rome. And Rome ran from 146 BC uh, through to about AD 400. And of course this rock that smashes the feet, destroys the statue, becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth, of course that rock is a kingdom that God will establish at the time of the fourth empire, the fourth kingdom. Now this was all in the interpretation that daniel gave and of course jesus the messiah came to earth during the time of the roman empire so here's the first prophecy of when Messiah is going to come to establish his kingdom it will be during the reign of this fourth kingdom uh, which as we look back in history we can see was the roman empire and of course the jews i mean you know sort of like from the time of daniel onwards Believing Jews, because they had the Old Testament, they had Daniel, they're kind of, you know, as the years go by, they're ticking off the kingdoms, aren't they? Because this was the idea of it. God wanted Israel to know when Messiah was coming. So they had these, like, a checklist. All right, okay. Oh, yeah, second kingdom, bang. Third, oh, right. Oh, fourth kingdom, right. Messiah will be here fairly soon. You see, this is the idea of Daniel. And so that's the first dream. And so Daniel explains it to the king The king is absolutely delighted, and he makes Daniel his number two throughout the kingdom. So in the same way that Joseph, years earlier, became Pharaoh's number two when Egypt was the world power, now another Jew, a believer, has become second to the king in another world power, the Babylonian Empire. And of course, him being the king's number two made him the number one magi. Daniel is now the chief magi. As I was saying earlier, this sect, Daniel's influence remained in it right through till the time of Jesus. And also, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because obviously we won't want to think that they got left out, were made senior, a kind of like, you know, sort of administrators um, in the kingdom as well. So, right at the head of the Babylonian Empire, you've got four believing Jews. Now, chapter 3 we move on, and, uh, and Nebuchadnezzar, um, who hasn't become a believer yet, he does, but he hasn't yet, what he does now, because this, this guy doesn't know too much about humility, he makes a 90-foot-high gold idol, okay, um, and he kind of commands everyone to worship him. And of course, this, this idol was all, you know, because, because he made it. I mean, if you, if you invent a god, Who's the power behind that god? Well, you are. So, I mean, really, they're worshipping him, aren't they? And uh, anyway, but he, he, he makes a 90-foot-high gold idol. He, one morning, what, what should I do this morning? Thinks Nebuchadnezzar. Right, now I'll start a new religion. You see? So he, he makes a god and says, right, you've all got to worship it. And it's 90-foot-high made of gold. Absolutely amazing. Now then, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all right, no, no mention of Daniel in this chapter, probably on holiday or on a mission somewhere anyway. Daniel doesn't appear in this incident. He was obviously somewhere else. But Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego say no. Obviously, they worship the Lord. They can't worship idols. And um, now the point is that anyone who doesn't worship this idol is going to be put to death. That's what Nebuchadnezzar said. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are hauled up before him for refusing to worship. They say no, not going to worship. We worship the Lord our God only. Now the punishment for not, um, you know, kind of worshipping this idol was, was death by fiery furnace. You know, so I mean, they, they've kind of got this like massive oven and, uh, you know, and in you go. And uh, so in they went. And, um, and the soldiers around the oven, because this, this would have been massive, they could actually see in it. And they could see Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego wandering around. But there was a fourth person in there. They could see someone else. There were four, three, three three men went in, but there were four people in there. And, um, and what the observers, the soldiers said, is that it's one who looked like a son of the gods. So, so this fourth person was, uh, well, I mean, obviously we know who it was. It was Jesus in his pre-existence, second person of the Trinity. And then eventually Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they come out, they walk back out. You see, because when you chuck people in the furnace you don't have a door you see you don't need it you see because doors are to keep people in so obviously you know this furnace didn't have a door because once you were in there that you weren't expected to come out so out they come and uh, their, their clothes didn't even smell of smoke they were completely and utterly Um, unscathed. And of course, that's wonderful imagery. You know, if we go through the fires of what the fires of testing, the Lord is with us all the time. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, that was some miracle. And Nebuchadnezzar is gobsmacked. I mean, he's absolutely gobsmacked. And uh, he he doesn't get converted here, but he starts making noises about honouring the Lord. So there's the very beginnings of something happening in Nebuchadnezzar. And um, you know, and he promotes these three guys to even higher positions in the land, so a promotion in it for them. Now, as we move on to chapter 4, we actually come to Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. So this is him writing chapter 4. And this is him writing his testimony about how he eventually became a believer. Because obviously, I mean, the influence of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego—it it all had its effect on him, and and eventually he, he came through to the Lord, and um, and and this is how how it happened. Um, once again, he had a dream, and uh, his his occult major I couldn't interpret him, you know, the dream for him, but once more Daniel. With the Lord's help? Good. And all the time Daniel was, was was making absolutely clear that it wasn't it wasn't by his own wisdom or power or strength that he was interpreting the dreams. It was the fact that, that the Lord was showing him. And Daniel made that absolutely clear. So Daniel is able to um in, in interpret, you know, to tell him what this dream was and interpret it. And this is this is what the dream was. He 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 dreamt, you know, sort of Nebuchadnezzar that is he, he dreamt he he saw an an enormous tree in the middle of the land. So he looked down and and there was, as it were, the kingdom, the Babylonian empire. And and in the middle of it was this enormous tree. And it was so big that its top touched the sky and it was visible to the ends of the earth. So it was massive. I mean, it could be seen for miles and miles around. Its leaves were very beautiful and its fruit was absolutely abundant and it was food for all. So this tree fed everyone. And the beasts of the field found shelter under it, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. It was all-encompassing, and from it every creature was fed. Now, what happened then was a holy one came down from heaven, obviously within the dream, like, you know, an angel, a holy one, came down from heaven and ordered this tree to be cut down, but that its stump and roots should be left. So this tree is going to be cut down, but it's not going to be uprooted. It's just going to be chopped down, but the stump and the roots are still going to be there. And uh, the Holy One said that he... So here, obviously, this tree is a person. The tree is a he. So the Holy One says that the person who this tree represents um, should be drenched with dew and live with the animals among the plants. Um, and also, it was said that his mind would be changed from that of a man, and that he'd be given the mind of an animal. And that this decision had been taken, so that all men living would know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and that he kind of he's in control over all the kingdoms and does whatever he pleases. So that was the dream. Now, the interpretation was quite simple. The tree was Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, you know, sort of like it encompassed, because it was a kingdom over the then known world. Everyone was under its auspices in some ways. I mean, Jesus used a similar imagery, didn't he? Eventually of the kingdom of God, that all the birds of the air, you know, come and make them, you know, it starts off with something very small, grows into a big tree. Well, the imagery of what Jesus was saying there is this. Only that is going to be the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of the Babylonians. So this tree is Nebuchadnezzar. So he's going to be cut down, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and what's going to happen is that he's going to go mad. He will be struck with madness and he'll become like an animal until he submits to the Lord. And when he submits to the Lord, he'll be restored. So Daniel says, Neb, means this. You're going to go mad. Are you going to stay mad until you submit to the Lord? Are you going to live like an animal, and probably Scarpet <laughs> Got out very quickly. All right. And uh, in fact, it was a year later. A year passed, and then the dream was fulfilled. And uh, one particular day, a year after this dream, Nebuchadnezzar, he was, he went for a walk. You know, sort of like around, you know, his city, and uh, and he says this. He said. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power to the glory of my majesty? Now, throughout the Bible, you'll find that the imagery or, you know, that sort of Babylon represents man in his own pride and effort, man without God, man with his own systems and that what you've got here really is fundamentally what sin is all about and it's the three problems that you and I suffer from that all the time the Lord is working in us to set us free from and they're basically this, number one, self-will is this not great Babylon which I have built? Nebuchadnezzar saying, I wanted to do it so I did it uh, you know Frank Sinatra's song, I did it my way is, that, that is sin We're supposed to do it God's way. way. So there's self-will. And then secondly, you've got self-effort, which I have built by my mighty power. And then thirdly, you've got self-glory, to the glory of my majesty, because what you do, you get the glory for. It's fair enough, isn't it? So here you've got the three things that God wants to deliver us from. Self-will, self-effort, and self-glory. And here you have it summed up in Nebuchadnezzar's statement. What a great person I am. And, um, you know, and that is what the Babylonian Empire represents in the Bible. That's what the imagery is all about. The, you know, the, m- man's capabilities of himself. Man without God. Uh, the world system with God excluded. Now, within that system, you can have idolatry. You can have, you know, false faiths and wrong religions. But at the end of the day, it's all about man. Man is the centre of it as opposed to, to the Lord. And, um, and no sooner had these words dropped from his lips, then they were fulfilled. And madness came upon him. Out of the blue, it just dropped on him. And for seven years, that's how long it took for him to submit to the Lord. For seven years, he ate grass like cattle, his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, and his nails grew like the claws of a bird. Complete madness, a complete bestiality, came upon him he went start raving bonkers and he found himself a field and he lived in it for seven years uh this this kind of seven years in in the bible you'll find it seven times now we'll be back to this next you know in the next talk but it's seven years because this word times is shavua and what it is it means seven all right and but seven what you find out from the context so whenever you get the word shavua in hebrew it means seven but it could mean seven days, seven minutes, seven years, seven you know sort of seven millennia, or it could mean seven lollipops you, you 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 deduce seven what from the context, and obviously from here it's seven years I mean it's clearly you know sort of like seven years, and so seven years of madness, um which is interesting because of course, what does Israel go through in the great tribulation? seven years, right you see all the you know the symbolism because it took seven years for Nebuchadnezzar to submit to God. And in the last days in the Great Tribulation, which lasts for seven years, that's how long it will take for Israel to submit to God, you see. So you've got all this really symbolic stuff here. and uh, But eventually he's restored, and he's a believer now, so number one, you know, sort of like man on the face of the earth, is now a believer, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in chapter 5, we now skip about 70 years, all right? So now we go right to the end of daniel's life and daniel is now an old man and uh, nebuchadnezzar is dead he's gone so we've skipped many years all right and um and the king of the babylonian empire at this particular juncture in chapter five was belshazzar now he was possibly nebuchadnezzar's grandson although we, we we can't be sure but um Belshazzar is having a drunken orgy, which which was his idea of how to spend the evening. Right. And uh, he was using uh, all the the goblets and all the, the gold and the silver plundered from the temple 70 years earlier. Because when Nebuchadnezzar went into Jerusalem, he plundered the temple and took all the treasure. And what they're doing now is that Belshazzar is having a drunken orgy, and he's specifically using the goblets that were taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So. This is really him adding insult to injury against, against God. And, um, you know, so, so, so it's just absolute, you know, sort of like a, a brazen orgy going on. And suddenly the, the fingers of a human hand appear. This is, you know, really sort of be you know, just a hand. No, no arm, just, just a hand. It's quite safe because there's no arm in it. And wrote some words on the wall. And I course this is where you get this phrase, the writing on the wall. And, um, and Belshazzar, it says that his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. <laughs> Which is possibly understandable, this hand in mid-air writing words on a wall. <laughs> and um, the occult magi couldn't interpret what this writing was. They didn't know what it meant. Now Belshazzar was told of what Daniel had done many moons ago in Nebuchadnezzar's day. So Belshazzar obviously been told that there was this bloke and he's still alive and he, he knows all about this sort of stuff. So Daniel, now an old man, was called for. And Daniel comes in and, uh, and he sees the writing. And what the writing was, it was Mene, Mene, Tekel and Parsin. That's what was written, okay. And I, I suppose in some ways, probably kind of like the tongues. And uh, you know, and Daniel is given the interpretation. And uh, so he, he he tells him what this means. And he says, right, meaning many. Now that means, Belshazzar, that God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. That's what meaning many means. Now the next bit, take all, means this. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. See, that's where the, that phrase, we use that phrase. It's a modern, you know, this is where it comes from. And then passing, which means your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, the Medes and the Persians are, yes, the chest and uh, arms of silver now, the second world empire. And, uh, you know, so that is what this message was. Now, that very night, Belshazzar died and Babylon, the city of Babylon, fell to Medo-Persia without a shot being fired. It was literally a bloodless invasion. And overnight, the Babylonian Empire was subsumed by the growing Medo-Persian Empire. So, the head of gold, its time has come to an end. And it's God who decides when empires rise, when empires fall. So the head of gold, as it were, chopped off now. And we're down to the chest and the arms of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire. And uh, the the ruler of of the empire at that time was was Cyrus. Now, we've met Cyrus before, haven't we? Because Cyrus was the one who said to all the Israelites in the captivity, right, you go back now and you rebuild your temple. We we came across him when we were doing the history of Israel in earlier talks, didn't we? So Cyrus was the big man. He was the head of the Medo-Persian empire. But the actual bloke who ruled in Babylon on his behalf was Darius the Mede, and uh, he, he, he was there like for, for the first uh, couple of years or so. Now we move into chapter 6, and Darius makes Daniel his number two as well. So, you know, sort of like Darius, obviously recognised he's a man of some worth, and so Daniel is now number two in the Babylonian uh, section of the Medo-Persian Empire, so he's still very, very honoured. uh, But but what happens is that the other sort of governors are jealous. They they, they hate Daniel and they want to see him deposed because they're jealous. But they can't find anything wrong with him because they're looking for something they can use against him. But they can't find anything because he's clean. I mean, he's he's clean because he's he's following the Lord. He's living a holy holy life. And uh, so, so they had to use another approach. And uh, what they did is they knew that Daniel prayed to the Lord three times a day. They knew that. This was well known with Daniel. Three times a day he prayed to the Lord. That was his, his prayer life. That's, that's how he worked. And, um, and so what these governors did is they, they, they got together and they, they persuaded Darius to make a decree that anyone who prayed to anyone but Darius for the next 30 days should be thrown to the lions. I mean, the point is, we, you know, if, if you were in charge in those days, you were in charge. I mean, you could declare yourself a God and be prayed to just like that. You know, I mean, it's quite Saturday morning, nothing else to do. Oh, I think I'll be a God today and everyone can pray to me. So these governors say to Darius, look, make a decree, you know, sort of like, you know, be a God for a while. And for 30 days, no one must pray except to you. And so Darius says, oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, that'll do good. Strengthen the kingdom, law and order, no problem at all. So, obviously, you know, sort of like the decree is, is, is signed. And um, so the next thing that happens is that the governors, what happens? They roll up with Daniel. And they say, he won't pray to you. And, uh, you know, and Darius realises what's happened. And he was upset. He was upset that he knew that he had to put Daniel to death and he didn't want to. And he realised it was a ploy then. But there's nothing he could do about it. He'd made a decree. So Daniel had to be thrown to the lions because that was the edict. He couldn't go back on it. And uh, so they threw Daniel to the lions and what happened? Well Daniel and the lions had a marvellous time of fellowship together because the lions didn't go near him and he survived and out he walked. As Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had walked out of the fiery furnace years earlier, now Daniel walks out of the lions' den and uh, he, he survived. So what Darius did, the governors who stitched him up, he said, oh the lions can have them and they were thrown in. And the lions tore them to pieces. So, you know, sort of like, you know, don't 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 mess with Daniel. Um, now, with that, the end of chapter six, we, we now come to the end of what you would call the historical narrative. That's basically the end of the story. We have covered Daniel's seventy years in Babylon. That's it with the history. What happens now from chapter 7 onwards are various visions um, and prophecies and, you know, sort of things that Daniel received from the Lord at various points throughout the history that we've already covered in chapters 1 to 6. So with chapters 1 to 6, we've done the history. And we've had the introductory vision, you know, sort of like with statue, all right, We've now come to the end of the history, and from chapter 7 onwards, we're now going to get visions and dreams and revelations and things like that. Bang, 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 bang. And these were all received by Daniel at various points during the time span that we've covered in chapters 1 to 6. So, so now we really do dive into the revelation aspect of, of, of Daniel. And uh, I mean, pretty, pretty amazing it is as well. So um, we move on to to, to chapter seven, and um, and we have a vision now that is very much a continuation of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had back in chapter two. This statue, like the head of gold, the uh, chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, and the you know the legs of of, of what was it, clay and, 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 and iron, and the feet of, of that mixture. And that vision represented four kingdoms. And we saw what the four kingdoms were. They were the Babylonian Empire, which was on the go at the time that Nebuchadnezzar had that dream. Followed by the Medo-Persian Empire. Now we saw that, at, you know, towards the end of Daniel's life as an old man, Medo-Persia conquered the Babylonian Empire and then thirdly the Greece Empire, and then thirdly the Roman Empire. So we saw that that statue represented four world empires. Now what happens now is that Daniel has a vision of four beasts emerging from the Great Sea. Now you often find in the Bible, alright, that the Great Sea is representative of mankind. So this is a human thing that we're looking at. And We're going to see that this directly parallels the dream of the statue represented four kingdoms. Now Daniel has this vision of four beasts emerging from the great sea. Now as we we go through them one by one, things will become clear. Now then, beast number one. This was like a lion, but it had eagle's wings. The wings were plucked off. It was then lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. Beast number one. Number two. This was like a bear, but it was raised up on one side. It was walking wonky. There's a song there in there, Walking Wonky. And it had three ribs between its teeth. And this beast was told to, and I quote, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. Beast number three. This was like a leopard. And it had four wings of a bird on its back. It also had four heads. And it was given power to rule. Now then, beast number four. Now this was different from the other beasts. The other beasts were all kind of definite you could see what they were but this one was different Um, it was terrible it was dreadful and it was exceedingly strong and it had 10 horns what's interesting this beast it's it's not it's not likened to anything it's just described it's not likened to a bear or anything it's just described and it had 10 horns and another little horn came up so this 11th horn appeared but only after three of the existing horns had been plucked out. So this beast, alright, it had ten horns, three of them were plucked out, leaving seven, and then an eleventh one, another one, came up, alright? Now this little horn, the one that came up, the eleventh one, had the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Then the Ancients of Days appeared for the opening of the books and the beast was destroyed and handed over to be burned with fire now the previous beasts had dominion taken away from them but their lives were prolonged for a period of time then one like a son of man was presented to the ancient of days and is given dominion and an everlasting kingdom now then you're wondering does he know what that means? <laughs> well, I'm going to try. All right. <laughs> I'm going to try. It's not actually maybe as difficult as you might think. So let's let, let's move on to the in- interpretation. Now, in chapter 7, in verse 17, the key verse in the interpretation is this. He's told, Daniel is told, the great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise up from the earth. See, the beasts came out of the great sea will arise from the earth. They're four human kingdoms. Now, in the book of Daniel, no interpretation is given for the first three beasts. There's no interpretation given, only for the fourth one. However, I'm going to give you an interpretation for the first three beasts. See what you think, all right? And, uh, And I think that sort of, if we do it in the light, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue, and in the light of the interpretation that is given of the fourth beast, I think you'll see that uh, we're, we're pretty close to the mark, okay? Now then, okay, number one, beast number one. Let's Let's remind ourselves. Like a lion, but with eagle's wings. The wings were plucked off. The beast was then lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. So, beast number one, what's that? Well, obviously, it's Nebuchadnezzar. It's the Babylonian Empire. Um, he's lifted, this beast is lifted from the ground and stood on two feet. So, obviously, it was on all fours, and it was given the mind of a man. Well, we read specifically that he was given the mind of a beast until such time as he submitted to God. So this beast number one is clearly Nebuchadnezzar. It is the Babylonian Empire. Now also it says, like a lion. Now notice it doesn't say these beasts are lions or leopards or or bears. It says they're like leopards. They're like blah, 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 okay. And in this instance, like a lion with eagle's wings. Now the lion and the eagle were national symbols of the Assyrian Empire. Now, what happened to the Assyrian Empire? It was taken over by the Babylonian Empire. So in the same way that Medo-Persia had taken over the Babylonian Empire, the Babylonian Empire had previously taken over the Assyrian Empire. And the national symbols of the Assyrian Empire were a lion and an eagle. And what happened was that Babylon adopted those symbols for itself. So those symbols became like its national flag. A way of saying, look, you know, we've already taken over one world power, don't mess with us. It's a a declaration of of power. So, therefore, we can see quite clearly that this first beast that was like a lion is Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire. Now, what does that tie up with? The head of gold. See, put the statue and these four beasts side by side. I think you'll see it works. Right, beast number two. It was like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs between its teeth. It was told to get up and eat your fill of flesh, so it was a a conquering beast. So, like a bear, raised up on one side, three ribs between its teeth. Well, this is Medo-Persia. This is the chest and the arms of silver. Now, like a bear raised up on one side. Medo-Persia was a coalition empire. It was a merger between the Medean empire the medes and the persians the persian empire so a coalition but within it persia was the dominant partner so cyrus was persian so the dominant i mean a merger of two empires but the dominant empire was the persian empire so it was made up of two halves but one was bigger than the other it was imbalanced and this bear one side was higher than the other. There's a joke there about a prophet, isn't there? One of the prophets got his name from that, yeah, because one eye is higher than the other, you see. It was, you know, sort of like, so this bear, I say to you, obviously represents Medo-Persia, because it's raised up on one side. Now, it had three ribs between its teeth. It's been told, isn't it, to go and devour flesh. It's got three ribs between its teeth. Like it's, it's finishing them off, you know, a plate of spare ribs, and it's got three in its mouth, and it's finishing them off. Now, um... The Medo-Persians conquered Lydia, Babylon and Medea. So there were three specific kingdoms that it conquered, they're the three ribs. And it was its conquering of the Median Empire that led to Medea being one of the partners within it. So again, beast number two, the Medo-Persian world empire. So coming down, here's the statue, beast number two, Medo-Persian empire, And in the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw, the chest and the arms of silver was the Medo-Persian Empire. Right, now then, beast number three. This was like a leopard. And it had four wings of a bird on its back. And it had four heads. And it was given power to rule. Now then, this is the Greece Empire. What makes me say that? A leopard is swift. And it's likened to a leopard. A leopard is fast. Alexander the Great, who was the leader of the Greek Empire, he conquered the then known world in 10 years. 10 years, that was it. In 10 years, under his leadership, Greece went from just being a country to being a world empire. Unprecedented in ancient history. The speed with which he did it. Unbelievable. (coughs) Now, this leopard, this beast like a leopard, had four wings and four heads. So four, you know, features a lot here. Now, Alexander died at just age 32. Can you imagine you die at age 32 and you've conquered the whole world? It's quite a career, hence Alexander the Great. It was an an amazing story. Now, when he died, his kingdom was divided between his four generals. So, while Alexander was leading the empire, he had four right-hand men, his four main generals. And when he died, the empire, the Greek empire, was divided between these four generals. Now the generals were called Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus and Ptolemy. And the division of the kingdom. Now let me just emphasise at this point, this is ancient history. This isn't just stuff coming from the Bible. This is, you know, you ought to remember this from school unless you're as old as I am, in which case you don't, because it was too long ago. But this is standard ancient history. There's nothing, um, you know, this isn't just from the Bible. If you studied ancient history, everything I'm telling you is what you would study. No one doubts the history that I'm telling you now, okay? Now, the northern part of the kingdom, which was called Macedonia, the northern part of the Greek Empire, went to Cassander. Asia Minor went to Lysimachus. And Syria went to Seleucus, and Egypt went to the Ptolemies, the general called Ptolemy. And thereafter, it continued as four separate kingdoms. So when we see this leopard with four wings, four heads, you can see what it stands for. The Greek world empire, after Alexander died, ended up as being four separate empires under the four generals. And of course, the two that are mostly, you know, the most famous was the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire. So Seleucus and Ptolemy, i.e. Syria and Egypt, they're the ones which are are, are best known by people. They were historically the most important. So there's the third beast, it's Greece. And that ties up with the, um, the, the belly and thighs of bronze. So what we're seeing is that the statue in chapter 2, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had of the statue, represented four kingdoms. And each kingdom being represented by different parts of its body, starting from the head, working down to the feet. And there you have the time frame, the head further back in time. And as you go down to the feet, you're, getting, you're moving along in history. So the head the earlier, the feet the later. All right. And, uh, but here... Each of these kingdoms, rather than being represented by a part of the body of a statue, is simply being represented by a beast and being represented in greater detail at all. The statue merely told us four kingdoms. This has given us more details about the kingdoms. So now we come on to beast number four. The leg, the legs and the feet. Now, this is Rome. And the interpretation of this beast and the imagery of it is actually given by Daniel. He's told the interpretation. And this is what it is. Let's just remind ourselves, actually, of uh, what we actually saw. All right. It was different from the other beasts. It had ten horns. Three were removed. Then another horn came up. Now that horn that came up had the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. The Ancient of Days appeared for the opening of the books and the beast was then destroyed and handed over to be burned with fire. The previous beasts had dominion taken away from them but their lives were prolonged for a period of time. Then one like a son of man presented to the Ancient of Days and is given authority and an everlasting kingdom incidentally when you read the gospels you often hear this thing that people say uh, you know that sort of like jesus didn't claim to be god and you you sometimes hear this thing even by people who do believe that he was god that that when he called himself the son of god he was emphasizing his divine nature but when he called himself the son of man he was referring to the fact that he was a man you know sort of human now in actual fact, that isn't the case at all. When Jesus called himself the Son of Man, he was using a title that was as messianic as Son of God. And it comes from Daniel, one like the Son of Man. See. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in the Gospels, that is part of his claim to be God. And the Jews listening were well aware of Daniel. You see, Right, okay, so the interpretation. In this kingdom, these horns, remember there were ten to start with, three vanish and then... Another one appears. These are individual kings within that empire. And the eleventh of these kings has a period of three and a half years. Now, in the Bible, you'll read the phrase, a time, two times, and half a time. Time equaling a year. One year, two years, half a year, three and a half years. So this eleventh horn, this eleventh king, this little horn that rises up, has a period of three and a half years when he wages war against the saints, and they are given into his hand. Now, who are the saints? Israel. Now, thing is this: nothing in known history resembles this. We know it's the Roman Empire, all right. We know that from uh, you know, sort of like the the four kingdoms. We know that from the feet of the statue. We know it's Rome. But this history of Rome has never happened. We're given details of the Roman Empire here that haven't happened. And what we've got is here we've got a snippet. Now, next time, as we finish Daniel, we're going to get a lot more than just snippet. But here we've got a snippet of a history of the Roman Empire that hasn't happened yet. And yet, the the Roman Empire is gone, isn't it? So how can it be that here we've got a history of the Roman Empire that is future to us? It hasn't happened even yet. It was Not only was it future to Daniel, a lot of the stuff that Daniel got was future to him, but it's history to us. Here's an example of stuff that Daniel got that is still future to us. It still hasn't happened. So how can it be that we've got a history of the Roman Empire that is still future? Well, the answer to that is quite simply this. The Roman Empire is going to arise on the earth again. The Roman Empire will be the ruling power in the Great Tribulation. Now, do you remember that when we saw the statue, this last kingdom, it was a divided kingdom. Do you remember I said that? The Bible said it was a divided kingdom. Well, here is what it means by a divided kingdom. It's divided by time. Because it's a kingdom that has lived and died and is going to return in the future. And it's divided because it's going to exist twice. Part one and part two. And there's a division between them. And the division between them is actually the church age. So this fourth empire is Rome. It appears twice separated by X numbers of years. It's divided by time. And this kingdom is also said to be different from the other beasts. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why it is different. Those kingdoms, I mean, although although anyone could kind of say, right, pray to me, blah, 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 Nevertheless, they still had idols. You know, Nebuchadnezzar made an idol, didn't he? So the worship they received was all like via an idol. So the point is, the three kingdoms that we've seen, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian and the Greek Empire, they had gods. Alright? So they worshipped gods that were separate from themselves. But Rome, what was the distinctive feature about Roman faith as it developed through the years? It developed into the worship of Caesar. It wasn't that you had gods that you worshipped, you worshipped Caesar as God. And that's what held the Roman Empire together. They said, look, you can have other gods, but your main god must be Caesar. Now... What is the distinctive thing in the Great Tribulation that the Antichrist is after? Worship. And what was the distinctive thing about the Roman Empire and its leader? You worshipped its leader. And here we're seeing that the Roman Empire, this fourth kingdom, that was shattered at the time of Jesus, the rock hit the feet, well, shattered, is going to come back. It died, but it's going to be, as it were, raised again from the dead. So the Roman Empire is going to arise again and the Roman Empire is once more going to rule the earth. When it happens, it will arise, it will come to power through a coalition of ten leaders. But three of those leaders, however it happens, are put down. Whether they die by natural death or whether they're usurped or whatever happens, they are replaced by this eleventh leader And he will arise as the biggie leader above the whole lot of them. So it starts off with ten. Three go, leaving seven. Then this eleventh one emerges. So you've got eight in all, eventually. And this eleventh leader is going to be the biggie leader over all of them. And uh, he will have a mouth speaking great things. Why is that? Well, because he's going to claim to be God. You can't claim greater than that. He will make war on the saints for three and a half years and defeat them. What happens in the second half of the Great Tribulation? The Antichrist lays siege to Jerusalem. And it's only the second coming that prevents the total destruction of Israel. It also says that he will blaspheme and take God's place. That's in a kind of a coded phrase in verse 25 that says, he'll change the times and the law. Now times and law are kind of absolute and only God can change absolutes, He will. Because He considers Himself to be God. However, and remember all that I'm saying, this is the interpretation that Daniel himself gives in chapter 7. However, judgment will be carried out on him by the ancient of days. But who's the ancient of days? God the Father, first person of the Trinity. And this this man, this this eleventh horn, his kingdom is destroyed, and he with it is burned with fire. In Revelation, what happens to the the beast? What happens to the Antichrist and his kingdom? Thrown into lake of fire. Then dominion is given by the Ancient of Days to one like the Son of Man. Well, who claims to be the Son of Man? Who was the Son of Man? Jesus, second person of the Trinity, and that kingdom. Which will comprise the saints of the Most High, all believers throughout history, shall never end. And we're back to the stone, the little uncut rock that hits the feet, grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. Because what we're seeing in these world kingdoms is that all the time at the back of human history, behind what I've always called the cosmic curtain, is Satan and the principalities and powers. Working to keep man away from God so that man all the time is veering towards world powers that prevent God from having anything to do with it because when you get a world power it's manipulated by Satan obviously Satan at the same time is being manipulated by God it's back to the Tower of Babel remember God said to them look spread out over the face of the earth what did they do? they all hoarded together at Babel what was Babel the beginning of? it the beginning of Babylon it's where the name came from and so, what we're seeing, all right, here is, um, you know, sort of like a, a picture beginning to emerge the history of what's going to happen at the end of human history. Now, earlier on, I mentioned John and the Revelation. In the book of Revelation, now, all this that we've been talking about heads, leopards, bears this should be sounding rather familiar to you. And now, let me show you the tie in between Daniel and John because you interpret the one through the other you can't understand the New Testament and the last book of the New Testament and the Revelation of St John without Daniel and you can't understand Daniel without the book of Revelation so let me see, show you how they fit together okay let's just go through these beasts again very very quickly and what I'm after are the heads Alright, and then I'm going to be after the horns. So remember, heads and horns, this is the key. Daniel's four beasts, alright. Number one, like a lion, Nebuchadnezzar. How many heads does a lion have? One. Second beast, Medo Persian Empire, like a bear. How many heads does a bear have? One. Third empire, Greek Empire, like a leopard. How many heads does a leopard have? One. But do you remember that leopard had four? Four heads. So we got six heads so far. Now then, beast number four, the Roman Empire, it's not described except that it's very terrible. There's no like description of it. You know, It's not compared to anything at all. But it does have one head. And that one head initially has ten horns, though an eleventh appeared, although three were plucked out. All right. Now, I want you to put all that together, and here's what we've got. We've got lion, bear, leopard, seven heads, and ten horns. All right? That's what we've got. If you take a composite of these beasts, I know the fourth, the fourth beast, it started off with ten horns, and then an eleventh appeared after three were taken, but the point is the most there are at any one time, and initially when it appeared, it had ten horns. So, if we put Daniel's beasts, all four of them together, what you've got, the imagery, you've got lion, bear, leopard, seven heads, ten horns. Remember that. Now, go to Revelation. Find chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Remember, in Revelation, what we've got here really from you know sort of in Revelation chapter 4 you've got the rapture and then from then on you've got a history of the great tribulation through to the second coming through to the millennium and through to the eternal state we'll see that more clearly when we get to the very last talk in the Bible survey obviously. Right okay Revelation 13 I saw a beast coming out of the sea where did Daniel's beasts come out of? Hello? Oh well, well done. The sea He had ten horns and seven heads. Does that ring a bell? And on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard. Tick that off. Had the feet like those of a bear. Tick that off. And a mouth like that of a lion. Boom, boom. There you got it. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seems to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. Could that be that the Roman Empire had died, and it's going to come back to life again in the future? The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast, who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies. As you get the feeling, we're talking about the same thing that Daniel is here, and to exercise his authority for 42 months. Would anyone like a close guess how long 42 months is? Three and a half years, madam. Clever, is it? He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander His name and His dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. Does this ring a bell? Yes, it does. Um, And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Well, we've got a bit of a boom-boom there, haven't we? If you go to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. Now, uh, Start with, with, with verse 3. This is another beast that John has shown. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. So seven heads, tick that off. Ten horns, tick that off. All right. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, on her forehead. The mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And go down to verse 9. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads, right, seven heads, ten horns. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. Now, I know of two places that are built on seven hills and one of them tells us something about this kingdom the fourth beast now the first place i know of because i used to live very near there was sheffield i don't think that tells us anything i do not think that the antichrist will be based in sheffield i just want to make that clear because i don't want old oh, beresford's got these strange doctrines going around or i don't want any rumors like that the other place rome is built on seven hills It's the Roman Empire and the seven heads. All this imagery, yeah, it's all clear, but it can all mean different things. And the important thing is that with interpreting all this symbolism, we're not interpreting it just as, oh, I think it means that, or I think it means this. We're interpreting it by the Bible. Do you see the important thing about it? Read Daniel and you can make what you like of it. Read the book of John on Patmos in Revelation, you can make what you like of it, read them both together allowing the Bible to interpret itself and it's absolutely clear what it's all about. Go now back a few chapters to Revelation chapter 12. because We've seen the beast haven't we? We've seen the Antichrist kingdom we saw that just now in, in chapter 13 coming out of the sea we saw the woman, mystery Babylon And what did I say that that stands for? What I have done by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. That's Nebuchadnezzar. It's the world system, that's what we're seeing. Now in chapter 12, we see again, or we we see in some ways very clearly, what lies behind human world systems. Revelation chapter 12, first three verses. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. Now we're going, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of like in in the last talk, but it's Israel, obviously. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth to Jesus, the Messiah. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and this is the bit what we want. That we want an enormous red dragon. Now who's this? This is Satan, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his head. Tick off seven heads and ten horns please and uh, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth that's the, the you know the the number of the angels who who followed him so there you have the dragon the fact that Satan is the power behind the Antichrist so we saw the beast in chapter 13 ten heads sorry seven heads ten horns the Antichrist himself we saw Babylon the mystery this woman. How many heads? Seven. How many horns? Ten. What's that? That's the world system that the Antichrist, that the Antichrist is head over. And now we've seen the dragon with seven heads, ten horns, because it's Satan who is at the back of the Antichrist, and therefore at the back of um, you know, sort of like all the um, you know, sort of like at the back of all the world powers that emerge. All right. And we saw as well that that the rest of the beasts, they have their dominion taken away, but their lives are prolonged for a while. Now, if you go to Revelation chapter 19, all right, and verse 17, find verse 17. Oh, I've got to do this really quickly. We're running out of time, all right? Um, Revelation 19, all right, and uh, verse 17. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men. And then verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet. Um, The two of them were thrown into the fiery lake. What you've got here, okay, in Revelation chapter 19, you have the second coming. Jesus comes again. And you have the... The beast and his system who are thrown into the lake of fire after the second coming. All right, Jesus comes again, judges the Antichrist and his system, throws the Antichrist and his kingdom into the lake of fire. So the fourth beast is no more. Then, in chapter 20 in Revelation, the first three verses, we have the thousand-year reign of Christ. Satan is bound and thrown into the bottomless pit, the abyss, Tartarus. Call it what you will. Okay. And so you have a thousand years with Jesus reigning on the earth and Satan and the demons are gone, all right? So there you have the kingdom of God, Jesus ruling the world physically from Jerusalem. All the prophecies of the Old Testament we saw in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, all the unfulfilled words from God for Israel are all fulfilled then. But then in verse 7, all right, we get this, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. Now, what we've got here is that at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, okay, Satan and the demons are released back onto the earth. And with the Gog and Magog thing, and we spoke about this at the end of the Ezekiel one, didn't we? Um, What you get is a replay of the Antichrist and the world system. So this world system thing, it emerges again. And that is what their lives are prolonged for. You see what I mean? Because the Antichrist and his system all ends up in a lake of fire. But eventually, at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, Satan is let loose on the earth for a while. There's another rebellion and marching on Jerusalem to try and kill Jesus. And that is what the, these kingdoms, what their beasts, their lives were prolonged for. They're going to make one last final appearance at the end of human history. And uh, then it's going to be over very, very quickly for them. And then obviously after that, you get the great right throne judgment and Satan himself is thrown into the lake of fire. So what you've got is this. The beasts in Daniel that we're seeing are varying forms of satanic domination over the world. They are satanically controlled world powers. Remember the Tower of Babel. God said spread out over all the earth. What did man do? All the time staying together in in big lumps and in Babel and eventually God had to confuse their languages. That's where Babylon started. That's where the Antichrist system started. All the time, a world power that is man-centred and not God-centred. Right? And these world powers, at the end of the day, is Satan manipulating mankind to try and keep mankind away from the Lord and eventually to create a world power that he himself will head through the Antichrist and that he will eventually get what he's always wanted and that is to be worshipped as God. So thus far, the world powers that we're seeing, before Daniel, there was Egypt and Assyria. At the time of Daniel, there was the Babylonian Empire and then the Medo-Persian Empire, followed by Greece and Rome. But the Roman Empire, although it died, although it was gone in 400 AD, the Roman Empire will emerge again and it will be a composite of all the world kingdoms that there have been so far. So in the great... A tribulation what you've got is all these demonic world powers all rolled into one. Remember the beast that, the, that, that, that is the Antichrist and the dragon and is a compendium of all four of Daniel's beasts. So all these world powers will be all rolled together in one a composite and it will happen in the great tribulation after the rapture when Satan makes his ploy for world conquest and the eventual destruction of Jerusalem in an attempt to stop the second appearing of Jesus so that he can rule the world for himself. So thus far we're seeing Daniel is all about the world powers and the future between his time and the coming of Jesus. And then after the church age into the reign of the Antichrist. And next week as we go through the rest of the visions and the dreams that he had, we're going to see this panning out in an awful lot more detail. So join me next week, same time, same channel.